This episode is brought to you by the American College of Physicians in celebration of National Internal Medicine Day on October 28th, 2020. ACP provides its 163,000 members with lifelong education, clinical support, practice resources, professional development, and advocacy resources. Visit acponline.org slash NIMD. The Curbsiders have partnered with VCU Health Continuing Education to offer free continuing education credits for physicians and other healthcare professionals. Check out curbsiders.vcuhealth.org to create your free account and to start claiming CE credit. The Curbsiders podcast is for entertainment, education, and information purposes only, and the topics discussed should not be used solely to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any diseases or conditions. Furthermore, the views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of the host and should not be interpreted to reflect official policy or position of any entity, aside from possibly cash like more hospital and affiliate outreach programs, if indeed there are any. In fact, there are none. Pretty much, we are responsible if you screw up. You should always do your own homework and let us know when we're wrong. Welcome back to the Curbsiders. I'm Dr. Matthew Watto, and sadly tonight, Stuart Kent Brigham and Dr. Paul Nelson-Williams not here, but we do have a fantastic co-host who I will tell you about in a second. Uh, On tonight's show, we are talking about ophthalmology and some cases. We spend a lot of the time talking about diabetic retinopathy, cataracts, and a couple pearls in there. We talk a little bit about perioperative management of patients going for cataract surgery. It's a great episode. There's there's lots packed into it. On this show, since Paul's not here, I guess I'll tell you what we do on the show. We are the internal medicine podcast. We use expert interviews to bring you clinical pearls and practice changing knowledge. And my co-host tonight uh, is writer, producer, future addiction medicine doctor, Dr. Carolyn Chan. She's been on the show many times. Carolyn, thank you for joining us. Yeah, so great to be here because we have an absolutely amazing show lined up for you guys. We have our guest, Dr. Nisha Chada. She is an academic ophthalmologist at the ICANN School of Medicine at Mount Sinai and the New York Eye and Ear Infirmary. She serves as the Director of Medical Student Education in Ophthalmology and is a course leader and preceptor in the first and second year medical students doctoring course called Arts and Science of Medicine, which she talks about later in the show. Professionally, she also has a special interest in medical education, including curriculum development and mentorship. Outside of work, she enjoys traveling, music, cooking, and has become quite the foodie living in New York. And today we're thrilled to discuss cases from her medical education platform at 2020 SIM, a sister site of Nexim. Yeah. And the, the address for that is 2020sim.com if you wanted to check it out. And I guess we'll skip a pun, Carolyn, unless you had something prepared. I'm almost afraid to ask. Well, I think that this show is going to be the missing wink in my ophthalmology education. <laughs> All right, that's not bad. That's it's one of your better ones. <laughs> it's not Stuart level, but yeah, it passes. Nisha, thank you so much for joining us. Let's start off, give the audience a one-liner about yourself and maybe give a hobby or interest, throw, throw something else in there. Sure. Well, first off, uh, thank you so much for having me as a guest tonight. It's a privilege and I'm excited to be here. Um, I'm Nisha Chada and I'm an assistant professor of ophthalmology and medical education at the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai and the New York Eye and Ear Infirmary. Um, I have a special interest in medical education and mentorship, 
but uh, outside of medicine, um, I love traveling, which has been a bummer this year with COVID. Um, and I've become quite the foodie having lived in New York City. I wanted to ask, what have you been reading? Or if you haven't been reading anything recently, what's what's a book that you would recommend to the audience, something that sticks out of your mind as like either an old favorite or a new favorite? Yeah, so certainly been reading a lot more during this time, but I have sort of an old favorite that that I'll share. And it's kind of nerdy, but it's the book uh, Growth Mindset by Carol Dweck. Um, and it's grounded in social psychology, but I have to say it really just changed my outlook on life. Um, it basically talks about uh, reframing failure as an opportunity to grow and improve. And I think in our field, um, you know, that's so demanding and requires lifelong learning, we all face failures or setbacks or shortcomings. And um, adopting a growth mindset can really help us to reframe our challenges. And it's a concept I wish I was familiar with earlier in my medical training. And to follow that up, you know, I have to ask, um, do you mind sharing with us what your favorite failure is and what you learned from it? Yeah, so I guess I sort of walked into that question. <laughs> um, so this isn't a specific failure, but I have to say after, I guess, nine years of, of training, you know, when I became an attending, and I feel like we probably all feel this way, you feel like you know how to handle a patient encounter. Um, and I certainly did, but I actually teach in our um, doctoring course, which we call the Arts and Science of Medicine. And over the past few years, as I've taught in that course and become familiar with the, the current curriculum, which is Really different than when I was in med school, um, I've really become a better doctor uh, from learning things like the current status of sort of approach to medical ethics to social determinants of health. Uh, I've just really um, realized uh, how much you know better we can be and how really staying up with current best practices can, can help us to continue to be kind of lifelong learners in medicine. Before we go on to the case, how about any advice you wanted to to pass on to the audience, advice that you have received yourself that you that you think is was really helpful to you? Yeah, so I think I can't remember if I got this as as a resident or early in my career, but I think um, particularly in academic medicine, uh, we often can feel pulled in so many different directions and kind of aiming for the trifecta of being a clinician, researcher, educator. But I've sort of received advice to really focus on what I'm passionate about, and sometimes I feel like we often, you know, in wanting to say yes, say yes to too many things, and maybe spread ourselves too thin, and maybe don't, you know, aren't able to bring our a kind of effort to everything. And so, you know, I've kind of realized it's okay sometimes to say no and really focus on the the projects that you're most passionate about, because then, you know, if you're passionate about it, naturally, you'll, you'll bring your best effort. I am totally guilty of that all the time, just saying yes to everything. So I, I'm curious, do you have uh, any tips on how to say no? I'll, I think I'll hear an idea and be like, yes. And then the next morning, I'll wake up and have that like, oh, no. Like what did Fires you just remorse. get into? <laughs> exactly. So I, I am no expert at it. It's something I'm working on, but I think um, refraining from saying that yes too soon is important and just sort of being thankful for the opportunity, expressing that and saying that, you know, maybe I just need to sleep on it. I, if I, if I commit to this, I want to be able to make sure that I can, I can commit the time that that is required of it. The great Dr. Amy Oxentenko uh, had, that's, that's her tact. Thank you. Uh, this, you know, thank you so much for thinking of me. Let me let me sleep on this, or let me talk to my inner circle about this. And I find that's very useful. And I and I, Carolyn, I if you hadn't spoken up, I was going to ask you about that because I know I'm a bit further out of training than you are. And 
that that first year or two out of training, I think it. It's, I've heard some people say it is really good to say yes to a lot of things just to get a lot of different things going. But then eventually you have to start saying no to things. Like once you figure out what it is you like to do and how you want to be spending your time, you have to pass some of those things on that you don't enjoy quite as much. But it it is hard. It's a, it's a constant like paring things down. Like the uh, what's the uh, book Spark Joy. Um, I'm, the author's name is is escaping me right now. I'm sure the author- Marie Kondo. Yeah, Marie Kondo. You got to Marie Kondo your your academic career at, at some point. All right, but I, I could that. talk about this all day. Uh, Carolyn, do you want to give a quick pick of the week before you read the first case for us? Yes, absolutely. So I've been listening to a lot of podcasts lately during quarantine. So I want to give a shout out to the Crackdown podcast. It's just a really well done monthly podcast. Uh, about drugs, drug policy, and the drug war. And it's actually led by drug user activists. So it gives just this like really wonderfully nuanced sort of perspective on harms reduction. And honestly, I can say it's it's like changed the way I think about how I care for my patients. So it's really worth a listen. That sounds awesome. Hey, everyone. ACP wants you to help celebrate National Internal Medicine Day on October 28th. Share your internal medicine pride by spreading I Am Proud messages throughout the internet. I know that I am proud to be an internist because during this pandemic, we have really been shining as internists. We've been staffing the hospitals. We've been keeping our primary care clinics going, whether via telehealth or venturing back into in-person visits. We've been finding new and innovative ways to keep our trainees engaged. The ACP has been making fantastic content to keep us all updated on COVID-19. So this Internal Medicine Day, October 28th, flood the internet with your messages of internal medicine pride, recognize a colleague, and spread love for internal medicine. Be sure to tag at ACP Internus and use the hashtags National Internal Medicine Day, I am proud, or I am essential. Visit acponline.org slash NIMD to jumpstart your celebration. Well, let's let's go to Cashlack, and I think we should start off with a case here, which is not so cleverly named. No offense, Carolyn. <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> um, so let's start with Mr. Proliferation. Uh, he's a 65-year-old male with a history of type 2 diabetes complicated by neuropathy. His last A1C was 10, and he presents to your primary care clinic today for follow-up of management of his diabetes. Right now, he's on metformin and takes glargine, and he reports that his mom actually, unfortunately, recently went blind from diabetes, and he didn't even know that that diabetes could cause such serious eye problems. So he wants to know if you, his PCP, can examine his eyes today for these complications. So to kick off this question, I think I want to take a little bit of a step back and ask uh, Nisha, what are the three vital signs of ophthalmology and how can a primary care doc assess for them in their office? Yeah, thanks for mentioning that, Carolyn. That's sort of my strategy that I like to, in my own practice, take to approach patients, but that I also like to share with medical students and, and residents that are rotating through ophthalmology. I think, you know, um, we don't get enough opto in med school, so there's a little bit of this anxiety about how to approach it. And I think if you just focus on these three vital signs, it can really help you to triage the urgency of a complaint. Um, so the vital signs are vision, intraocular pressure, and pupils. And so these 
these are three really simple things to do. If you have a Snellen chart or really with smartphones now, if you have a NearCard um, app that are easy to download, you can check vision one eye at a time and just simply see if the patient can't see the 2020 line and there's no other reason to explain that. Um, a sudden decrease in vision is something very urgent that we need to kind of uh, evaluate further. Um, pupillary response, uh, hopefully, you know, we all have some experience with that on neurologic services. If there's a non-reactive pupil, an afferent pupillary defect, or um, an asymmetry or anisocoria, uh, that can be very concerning. And then intraocular pressure is the trickier one. You know, we often don't have that in the primary care setting. Um, but in the ER, uh, it's pretty easy to get access to what we call a tonopen, which is what we use to check eye pressure. You know, I consider the poor man's intraocular pressure check also palpating the eyes. And I definitely don't uh, recommend doing this on a regular basis because, you know, you can probably get a lot of false positives. But if you really think the patient is having an acute elevation of their intraocular pressure, for example, like an acute angle closure, um, glaucoma attack, um, there will be a significant difference in the firmness of the eye when you feel it with the eyelid closed. And um, if by chance the pressure is elevated in both eyes and you don't feel a difference, what you can do is just compare on yourself. And if your eye feels a lot softer, then you know probably you know something is going on with the pressure. So I think approaching by evaluating those three vital signs, which can be done, at least two of them can be done quite easily, can help us to understand um, how urgent this is. I'm totally going to do this and someone's going to think I'm insane. Like I'm going to yeah. turn around, close my like eyes. It's a pandemic. Just... You're touching my eyes. You're touching my eyes with your hands during a pandemic. Uh, yeah. So wash your hands between touching your eyes and the patient's eyes. <laughs> Very important. If it makes you feel better, that's what we do with children because they won't let us come anywhere near their eye with a device to check their oh, pressure. Yeah. <laughs> so you feel with like the palm of your hands or just like the pads of your fingers? Oh, good question. Yeah. Actually the pads of your fingers. Pads of your fingers. Okay. Yeah. So just, I was of... picturing like a plunger motion into somebody's eyeball. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that probably would not be good. And, you know, they'll, They'll track that practice back to this podcast. <laughs> yeah. You'll, okay. I don't want to give you a bad, a, a bad name. <laughs> this, yeah, this, so this sounds sudden decrease in vision. And when can, let's, can we get a little bit granular on the, uh, on the timeline? So for a decrease in vision, we're talking like hours to days, or we're talking like, is it what, what's not concerning? What's more concerning? Yeah, so I think the acuity really matters. If it's a sudden change of vision, then we might be thinking something like uh, a retinal detachment, something vascular, like an artery or vein occlusion. If it's more kind of subacute, um, you know, maybe it, then something that could be referred within the next 24 hours. But I think the amount of decrease in vision is also really important. So if suddenly somebody who was 20-20 can't see the big E on the chart, even if this is going, going on for a few days, that that is such a, a dramatic change in vision that that warrants immediate evaluation. Okay. And with the pupils, uh, bear with me here because it's it's been a while. So anisocoria, is that where the pupils are just different sizes, just, just looking at them? Exactly. Okay. And the other ones you said were the afferent pupillary, uh, afferent pupillary defect. Right. And so that one, how do we test for that one again? 
Yeah. So that's, if you guys remember back in med school, the swinging flashlight test. Yeah. So when we go back and forth, the pupil should um, actually remain constricted uh, because of the consensual response mm-hmm. between the pupils. But as you're swinging, if the pupil actually enlarges when the light is in front of it, uh, where it should be constricting in response to light, then you know that pathway is abnormal, that even though when the light is shown in front of that pupil, it should be activating cranial nerve too, and it should be constricting. But if it actually paradoxically enlarges, then that's what we consider an afferent pupillary defect. And that tells us that something along that pathway beginning at the optic nerve um, is, is damaged. Okay. Got it. All right. I think I can handle that. Palpating eyeballs. Uh, I, that's something I'm excited to practice. I And I say that <laughs> <laughs> it sounds like a joke, but it's not. Our uh, patients we, are probably yeah. a little bit less excited. We've been learning a lot of cool. We've been learning a lot of cool things. We were talking about uh, feeling for the palpating the thyroid with your thumbs. Some uh, some cool things recently. Oh, so I'll have to ask you guys about that later. Yeah, you could <laughs> you could listen to we did we did two thyroid episodes recently, which are critically acclaimed, uh, and as Paul would say, probably Peabody Award winning. And we talked about that on both both of those episodes. Uh, feeling feeling the for the thyroid with your thumbs. I think we're getting back to glare one with all of these physical exam findings. Yeah. <laughs> let's go to let's go back to our case here. Um so this gentleman uh Mr. Proliferation, he has diabetes. What are the let's let's go through just some of the complications we should think about when some when we're seeing someone with diabetes that's complaining of uh anything about their eyes. Yeah, so there's two major ocular complications with diabetes. Um, One is, of course, diabetic retinopathy. And the other one that we probably don't focus on a lot is cataract development, which, you know, cataracts can develop in all patients. It's an age-related change. But often we see it earlier in patients with diabetes. Um, But we'll focus on diabetic retinopathy because that's that's the more common kind of change that we see. And and these changes occur across the spectrum, ranging from non-proliferative diabetic retinopathy all the way to what we consider proliferative diabetic retinopathy. Um, And the changes that are occurring really mirror what's happening in the rest of our body. So as we know, diabetes causes vascular changes. And so in the retina, we see this at a microvascular level. What happens is the retinal arterioles become weakened and they uh, form microaneurysms. Um, And these microaneurysms are prone to then leaking. And so when fluid leaks into the macula, which is the center of our retina. That's where we um, have our 20-20 vision. Um, the images become blurry because there's frankly swelling and, and what we refer to as diabetic macular edema there. So that's actually kind of the earlier um, stage of things and where we often see patients that are kind of complaining of kind of blurred, slow onset, chronic decrease in their vision. As things progress, though, unfortunately, we get an increase in uh, VEGF production or vascular endothelial growth factor. And so what that does is because of ischemia in the eye, it's trying to to promote uh, the growth of new blood vessels to bring uh, to improve perfusion. Um, and so new ve- vessels form. We call that neovascularization. But these blood vessels are abnormal, and so they actually cause uh, more harm. And so once we get once we have those vessels, it's considered proliferative diabetic retinopathy or, or PDR. And that can lead to more complications. So one, two common ones are vitreous hemorrhage and retinal detachment. 
And so vitreous hemorrhage is when these abnormal blood vessels, because they're not very robust, they can burst and they can bleed into the vitreous or into the eye. And so it's kind of having like a snow globe effect, if you will, of red blood cells floating around the eye that can really cause sudden vision loss. Um, and then, uh, unfortunately, these abnormal blood vessels can also form fibrovascular membranes that can pull on the retina or cause traction. And when they pull, then we get a specific type of retinal detachment, which we call a tractional retinal detachment. So, you know, to summarize, diabetes can range from just causing earlier onset cataracts to non-proliferative diabetic retinopathy with or without swelling or macular edema, and then all the way to proliferative diabetic retinopathy, which can further be complicated by vitreous hemorrhages or retinal detachments. I wanted to ask about the onset of this, because I know when when someone has type 1 versus type 2 diabetes, there's a little bit of a difference in when you begin certain screening. How long does this sort of thing take to develop from if someone has type 1 and we, we're pretty sure we know when they they kicked into diabetes, when do you start screening them versus someone with type 2 and, and what's what are the regular intervals? Yeah, so I think um, the kind of official guidelines recommend within the first five years of diagnosis. But I think in practice, if access to an ophthalmologist is not a concern, really we recommend screening from time of diagnosis. Um, And that also helps for us to establish a baseline, you know, particularly if there's other retinal or ocular changes uh, that the patient may have. Um, If the patient's well-controlled in terms of their glycemic control um, and there's no retinopathy, we usually recommend annual examination. Um, But and this is not, you know, um, an official guideline, but in my practice, if a patient um, doesn't have signs of diabetic retinopathy but is not optimally controlled, I may elect to see them in six months because sometimes when there's a sudden improvement or fluctuations, we can see ocular changes from that, even though we're working towards better control. Okay. Carolyn, what else What else do we have going on for Mr. Proliferation here? What else did you want to know about this case? I was kind of curious just about, you know, from a patient and like internist point of view, is there an A1C we should be targeting, you know, if a patient's very, you know, Mr. P super concerned, he wants to know if he gets his diabetes under control, will this risk go away, you know, and what does control mean and look like? Yeah. So, you know, I, I, I typically defer to my primary care colleagues on, on setting the target. And that's because I've noticed that the, the target has gotten stricter since even when I was in med school. But I don't know. What do you guys typically aim for with your patients? It's, it's a point of contention uh, among the guideline writers, but the uh, typically between 7 and 8% is is what the that's what the most recent ACP guidelines recommend because the strict control less than 7% can have some problems but if you can easily get somebody below 7% then absolutely get get it as low as you can but i think just like aggressively at all costs trying to get the the A1C as low as possible is is sort of falling out of favor now and uh so it's it's definitely been a moving target but you try to get them as low as you can safely do. And as the, the older and sicker the patient is and the shorter their life expectancy, we start to give them a pass. And it creeps up even to between eight and nine for really sick older folks with short life expectancy. So it's very individualized now. 
Uh, That's interesting. You've taught me something. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I think we can, you know, one kind of guideline that we can tell our patients is that improving the A1C even by 1% um, can imp- reduce risk. And I think our landmark studies have shown that an improvement by 1% can decrease microvascular changes up to like 35%. So that's that's encouraging, I think. Wow. Well, that's great. Definitely motivation. Yeah. Uh, good motivation, you know, for yeah. patients to hear that. Yeah. I, once in a while, when I'm lucky enough to get an a, a either a report back maybe a legible report, maybe nowadays, sometimes they're digital. Uh, In in previous (laughs) places I worked, uh, some of the cash lacks were pretty slow to adopt in a a digital record in ophthalmology. So you get these scratch notes with all these weirdo abbreviations, no offense to you as an ophthalmologist. And uh, I couldn't make heads or tails of it. I would just look to see, do I see like NPDR? And I knew that meant non-proliferative or just the like no retinopathy sometimes, but what, like, what should we look for on the report and what might we see on the report? Yeah. Great question. I mean, we totally speak a different language and I think where it gets really crazy is where one of our abbreviations has an overlap with internal medicine. Like we have an abbreviation PVD and that means something very different yeah. in internal medicine <laughs> and than in the eye. Um, but, um, you know, our, our website, which is this ophthalmology educational tool actually has an abbreviations, uh, tab on it where we kind of go through some of these common abbreviations like OD and OS, which refers to right and left eye. Um, but in the, in terms of diabetes, um, you're absolutely right. NPDR is, is how we abbreviate non-proliferative diabetic retinopathy. PDR refers to proliferative diabetic retinopathy. And then if you see a with ME, ME typically stands for macular edema. Um, and so that would be indicating the presence of, of swelling as well. Um, another you know, acronym you might see is OCT. That refers to optical coherence uh, tomography, and that's a retinal scan that we take on all of our patients to uh, look for macular edema. It's pretty amazing. The scan can, in, in high definition, image all 10 layers of the retina, and that's really revolutionized our ability to treat this, but often you'll see probably OCT along with kind of the interpretation of what was seen specifically on that image. I did not know the retina had 10 layers. I just thought it was just like, you know, one piece of tissue. Uh, did, it doesn't seem that complicated to me, but anyway. <laughs> okay. These terms are so, so long. How do you counsel your patients? I can imagine them being like, doc, like, what does this mean? Like I have proliferation. What does this mean? Yeah. You know, I, I often don't start with the term. I I really break it down. I have uh, a Google website with an eye diagram that I love that I always pull up. And and I really just talk about it in layman's terms. So I talk about the eye like a camera. I refer to the retina being the film of the eye because that's where our 2020 vision is. Um, And or or the densest amount of rods and cones where we achieve 20-20 vision. And then I explained to them that we can get swelling on the film with diabetes because of damage to the blood vessels. And so 
swelling on film is like having water droplets on film or swelling in the retina is like having water droplets on film. And so if you can imagine, then the picture is not going to be clear. Um, and so actually, it's a good point, Carolyn, because I don't even know if I get to telling them after that explanation <laughs> what the formal term is. Um, then I might get a follow-up message saying, I saw in my note that I have PDR. What is that? <laughs> That's great. Okay, so the the retina is the film, and uh, the film is the film is having some problems here. So you end up referring Mr. P to ophthalmology. Unfortunately, he has lost a follow up for two years, and now he is presenting back to your primary care clinic with a painful red eye and a sudden loss of vision that started two days ago. He states that he wore some colored contacts a few nights ago, and of course, he fell asleep in them. But he has since removed them. And on physical exam, he can only see motion um, with motion sort of at like one foot's distance. So uh, my question is, is how this seems like a great time. How would you integrate sort of the three vital sign approach to help triage this patient? Yeah. So if we think about the three vital signs, vision, uh, intraocular pressure, and pupils, we definitely have a sudden change in vision. Uh, hand motion is is what we test, how we test when the patient can't see the big E on the chart. So then we kind of step away and wave our hand. So just to kind of demonstrate how poor um, a vision of hand motion is. And so that's certainly very concerning. Um, what's interesting is the patient has pain. And so when we have painful uh, ocular complaints, most of our nerve receptors are on the front of the eye, on the cornea, on the conjunctiva. There's actually not uh, nerve, uh, painful nerve receptors in the retina. And so this can't be a retina problem alone. It could involve the retina, but we have to expand our differential given the pain. Um, we don't have a pupillary response um, or a pupil exam documented, but um, often when vision is this poor, I wouldn't be surprised if there is a pupillary change. And I, I would want to get information about, about the pressure as well. Um, we can't ignore the fact that the patient slept in the contact lenses. And so um, that's another thing to explore. And, and the reason I mentioned that is because any corneal issue can cause pain. So a corneal abrasion, a corneal ulcer, often associated with contact lenses, this could be simply related to that and, and not related to the diabetes. So pretty broad differential here right now. Dr. Glockham Flecken uh, of Twitter fame, he, he told us that if you fall asleep in your contacts too many times, you do get your privileges revoked. And uh, I think that might have happened to Mr. P here. So you're saying corneal, <laughs> corneal ulcer. And I was going to ask you, you, you answered part of my question in this, because earlier we were talking about some of the complications of diabetes, how you can get vitreous hemorrhage, retinal detachment, and then the retinopathies, like the non-proliferative and proliferative retinopathy, do those typically cause any symptoms or are they um, uh, insidious processes? I know the retinal detachment, I imagine, would cause vision loss or floaters or flashes. But can you tell us like, what, what sort of things do you listen for in the history for each of those? Yeah. So as I mentioned, we won't have pain with retinal changes. Um, if there's diabetic, so that can be really helpful to distinguish, you know, symptoms. Um, but uh, with non-proliferative diabetic 
retinopathy with or without macular edema, usually it's a very slow onset of change. And so patients will usually describe kind of slow deterioration in vision. It could be asymmetric. It could be kind of similar between the eyes. Um, as we progress to uh, proliferative diabetic retinopathy, vitreous hemorrhage is going to cause a sudden loss of vision because suddenly you have a broken blood vessel inside the eye and blood just very rapidly accumulates and literally kind of blocks light from coming into the eye. So if it's a painless, sudden loss of vision in a patient with diabetes, particularly if it's poorly controlled, that's got to be at kind of the top of your differential. Um, with the retinal detachment, that also is going to cause a sudden change in vision, but it'll be more of what we just a patient would describe as a curtaining effect because wherever the retina is detached, it's sort of like this curtain or blockage of, of vision um, in that area. And um, exactly as you mentioned, Matt, uh, it often is associated with uh, flashing lights and floaters as well. And that's because when the retina is disturbed or stimulated, we get um, a flash of light. Oh, that's great. So it sounds like you could really narrow it down a lot from like the time course of things and, and what the patient's describing, uh, which is which is super helpful. In this person with this painful red eye and the sudden loss of vision, um, Carolyn, do we have a do we have a little bit more information about what's happening to this person? Uh, I think that um, we're very lucky in this exam room and you have a fluorescent stain that you're able to magic up in your primary care office because you're just the most amazing intern resident sure. um, in the history of time. And it is negative and you decide to actually do the palpation technique because you, you can't find, you know, your uh, your pressure pen and it does feel extremely firm when you palpate it on a closed lid. And let's say the pupils are fairly equal and reactive to light. All right. This provider was an ophthalmologist in a past life. What an amazing <laughs> exam. We got we got palpation of the eyes. We have fluorescein stain, everything I need. Um, but so, so the fluorescein is really interesting. That's actually what we use to stain the cornea to look for a corneal abrasion or an ulcer. And it's actually super easy if you have it. You just instill it in the eye and you look under a blue light. And sure, we have the blue light on our sophisticated slit lamps, but a pro tip is that our fundoscopes, which often collect a lot of dust, even in our clinic, unfortunately, <laughs> have a blue light function. So if you switch from the white light on the fundoscope to a blue, you can actually utilize that um, to look for any staining with the fluorescein and any staining will light up as green under the blue light. And if you have a positive stain on the cornea, you know that it's either a corneal ulcer or um, a corneal abrasion. So um, in this case, I guess there's no fluorescein stain, meaning under the blue light, everything looks blue. There's no green. Um, but what's interesting is we get another vital sign, which is that this eye feels really firm. So with a firm eye, we're thinking elevated intraocular pressure, glaucoma something. But we know that this patient has uh, diabetes and poorly controlled diabetes. So, you know, in being doctors and, and trying to connect everything rather than kind of having individual symptoms, 
while this could be acute angle closure glaucoma, I would actually suspect that con- to connect the diabetes with the elevated intraocular pressure, this is probably what we refer to as neovascular glaucoma. And so what unfortunately can happen with proliferative diabetic retinopathy is those abnormal blood vessels that grow in the back of the eye in the retina can actually grow into the front of the eye into the trabecular meshwork, which is what drains into Schlem's canal. And that's the outflow pathway for fluid. So if Schlem's canal and trabecular meshwork are mechanically obstructed by these abnormal vessels, there's really no outflow. And so mechanically, um, the intraocular pressure goes very high because the outflow is obstructed. And so this is kind of the end stage, actually, of um, uncontrolled diabetes that unfortunately we see often um, you know, in, in perhaps patients that aren't able to advocate for themselves and, and describe um, that they're having vision loss and pain. Like we may we often see patients that are referred with like this intractable red eye that's been treated with antibiotics and it's just not gotten better. Um, and so I think this case illustrates that just going that one step further and determining if there's a change in vision with the red eye and uh, elevation in intraocular pressure can really save uh, the patient, um, in terms of, you know, their outcome. Wow. That's this, that's horrifying. So they, they're growing extra blood vessels in the front of their eye and it's blocking off the, um, it's blocking off the outflow. That is, that's terrifying. So the pain is, is, is from the increased pressure. That's, that's what's causing the pain in the, in the, exactly, exactly. Okay. Is there, and and for what what sort of treatments for diabetic is there is there a treatment for this is is Mr. P going to lose his vision permanently i imagine some permanent vision loss but is there once it gets progresses that far is there a way to treat this and what sort of things might our patients be getting yeah so the good news is there's excellent treatments for diabetic retinopathy, but you know, as with a lot of complications of diabetes, prevention is key and, and early detection is key in terms of visual outcome. Um, so early on, you know, with non-proliferative diabetic retinopathy and, and macular edema, typically our first line approach now is intravitreal injections, which are in, injections of medication into the eye. And most commonly, we inject anti-VEGF medications to decrease that VEGF drive and and that ischemic drive. Um, Once we progress to proliferative diabetic retinopathy, we often have to do a combination of these injections with laser in the eye. We refer to that as panretinal photocoagulation. Um, And then, you know, once things progress even further to perhaps vitreous hemorrhage or retinal detachment, then surgery is required. Um, We have to often surgically correct the retinal detachment, flatten the detachment back out, or surgically remove uh, the blood cells that are obscuring the vision. Um, This last example of neovascular glaucoma is really the most unfortunate. Um, And at, at this point, mainly because of ischemia, there's been a lot of vision loss that is uh, irreversible, but certainly we want to get the pain under control and preserve what vision we do have. And so that usually requires urgent um, glaucoma surgery to lower the intraocular pressure because this often will not respond optimally to just uh, topical medications. And of course, concomitant treatment of the the retinal uh, retinopathy issues. Are any of these treatments painful or uncomfortable for the patient? 
So interestingly, you know, I think uh, intravitreal injections are actually quite well tolerated. I think it's a lot scarier than it sounds. And, and it's helpful when our primary care colleagues can sort of ease our patients' anxiety about what they say, you know, having a needle stuck in their eye. Yeah, um, that doesn't that's, sound scary at all. <laughs> <laughs> that's totally, uh, you know, an understandable, um, you know, concern. But um, it's very small. It's a very quick procedure. Uh, we're able to numb the eyes so they, you know, they really don't feel too much discomfort. And I think, you know, after they've had the first or the second, they realize how, you know, how kind of tolerable it is. And um, I think once patients realize that you know, a lot of patients receive this kind of treatment. Um, and ultimately, when they experience the improvement in their vision, um, they really kind of become used to it. So it sounds like the uh, the anti-VEGF injection is to prevent new blood vessels from growing. And then the photocoagulation, the laser is to destroy the ones that are already there. Is that pretty much? And then the surgery is to remove things that just won't be fixed by either of those? Yeah, so the there's still an ischemic drive um, even with the non-proliferative form. So that anti-VEGF does help with that, and it helps with the leaky blood vessels early on. But certainly, it, it can prevent uh, neovascularization, and it can help with um, with vessels that are already present. The laser is just sort of. Um, in addition to to that, can also decrease the drive. Actually, what the laser does is it, it it we apply it to what we refer to as the peripheral retina, the retina away from the macula where we have central vision, to actually try to ablate tissue that already is just ischemic and sending out a VEGF signal. Oh, okay, cool. And just in case people miss that, it it seems like if we have fluorescein in our the stain in our primary care office then we can use the ophthalmoscope, just turn on the blue light and it's a, you know, it's a quick and dirty way to look for corneal abrasions or ulcers. Is it, Am I getting that right? I, I don't know how easy it would be to do, but I, I, I would be excited to try it if I had that on hand. Yeah, exactly right. So, you know, a patient comes in, uh, irritated eye after sleeping in their contact lenses, you could already kind of make the diagnosis. Uh, Carolyn, I'm going to just predict Paul is going to Paul's going to be very excited when he learns this. Uh, <laughs> I think we, so we like to geek out on physical exam, especially if it's, it's like, you know, stuff that's, I don't know. It's, it's, it's cool to be like, you know, to, to hack, have, find those hacks that you can cobble together from things that might easily be found around the, the office. All right. So we have, uh, so Mr. P let's say we did a great job. We preserved what we could of his vision and, uh, we got him back on track. So hopefully, hopefully the other, his other eye is okay. And I wanted to, let's take like a, a brief, uh, intermission from cases. And I just wanted, we had a couple general questions before we get into the second part of this. One of these, sure. can you please tell me what's going on with these eye vitamins? I see a lot of older adults in my practice, uh, who I love and they, a lot of them are on these eye vitamins and they tell me they have macular degeneration. It, for primary care, is this, should we be telling them that they need these vitamins or are you prescribing these vitamins for people? Yes. Yeah, so, you know, we do have landmark studies that have shown that patients with a diagnosis of macular degeneration do benefit from taking these, uh, what we refer to as the AREDS2 vitamins. Um, and those vitamins have been shown to decrease progression of macular degeneration by about 25%. Wow. Um, that being said, 
patients that don't have macular degeneration often learn about this and want to take the vitamins <laughs> to preserve their vision. But I have to say, I worry about that sometimes because the vitamins in those um, in this formulation are often part of multivitamins. And often our patients are taking multivitamins as well. So I don't want them to, to double up on some of the, the, you know, components. And so if someone has a very healthy retina, um, I, I do discourage them from, from taking the vitamins. There's really no evidence that it's going to, to change their health. Um, what we do recommend is a diet rich in green leafy vegetables, because those have natural components that are healthy for our eyes. Okay. So eat your eat your vegetables, and there. But there is something to these to these vitamins, and uh, and and then we'll just make sure they're not they're not doubling up on them too much. Okay. Right. And I don't think we have time to to fully go into macular degeneration, but it is definitely a common from what my reading. It's a very common cause of vision loss, and but most people with vision loss, in my opinion, are coming the way of an ophthalmologist. So uh, we'll happy to leave that one in your court and I'll just make sure they eat green leafy vegetables and take their vitamins. Uh, no problem. Okay. <laughs> Carolyn, uh, ready to go into the next case or do we have any other brief detours to, to go through? I think, I think we're ready to talk about the next case for sure. So today we have uh, Miss Steroids. She's a 60-year-old female with a history of end-stage renal disease, status post-renal transplant, who's coming with decreased vision in both eyes over the past few months. She used to have just amazing vision and only needed glasses for reading, but now she feels like she's blind and needs someone to help her ambulate without assistance. She denies any pain, redness, discharge, floaters, flashers, and right now she's on prednisone and tacrolimus. Six months ago, she did have 20-20 vision in both eyes that had been noted on a prior optometry note. And today, you know, um, you suspect cataracts. So my first question to you is, is what, what is a cataract and how do you formally diagnose them on physical exam? Yeah, so a cataract, going back to my uh, analogy of the eye being a camera, is like the lens of a camera uh, becoming cloudy. So, and, and in fact, the cataract is just what we refer to as the crystalline lens, which is clear when we're younger, um, becoming opacified. And it can get opacified actually in different regions. Um, the age-related changes refer to uh, which most of us develop just refer to diffuse opacification. But what was the name of this patient again? <laughs> Miss Steroids, which I, I'm sure Paul would not approve of. Stuart would heavily <laughs> approve of that name, and I'm I'm okay, but I'm okay with it. <laughs> so Miss Steroids, I wonder if you know uh, she got this name perhaps because she has been on steroids. Um, I, I think you mentioned she had a, a kidney transplant, or uh, yes. So perhaps, you know, somewhere in her post-operative management, she was on steroids. And so I wonder if that may have been involved because steroid use uh, chronically or at high doses can actually accelerate cataract formation, even in younger patients. Um, and, and that can be distinct in its appearance from sort of the normal age-related cataract. So like even over wonder, the course of a six month, that just seems like a insane, insanely quick time, time span. Yeah, it's not common, but we can see it for sure. And so that's where I think there's, you know, some other factors, you know, that, that of course, in terms of how patients individually develop cataracts, but certainly if, if the eye is very sensitive to the steroid and, and the dose, that could cause it. Um, as an aside, I would describe this presentation as 
kind of chronic, severe bilateral vision loss. And certainly cataract is on the differential, but something else I would also consider is glaucoma because glaucoma or open angle glaucoma, not the acute angle closure uh, that we sort of referred to earlier, but open angle glaucoma is... uh, what that is, is is damage to the optic nerve from chronically increased uh, intraocular pressure. And so that can be very insidious. We kind of describe it as the thief in the night uh, of vision because we first lose peripheral vision. And when we lose peripheral vision very slowly, but our central vision is intact, we as human beings remarkably adapt to that by kind of turning our head more to adapt to our surroundings. And so oftentimes patients Patients may not notice that they've lost a lot of peripheral vision until perhaps, you know, they have trouble kind of um, ambulating uh, in their environment. And so this would also be on my differential and, you know, a quick uh, palpation of the eyes or intraocular pressure check (laughs) may give us some more information, but just something else to consider. Can I, can I just ask you, since we're, since we were talking about glaucoma, um, just another quick tip for our primary care audience Patients that are in the hospital or patients they're they're out of the their drops, is it is it a big deal if they miss a couple days? This is this more of a long game? Like they have to if they take most of the doses out of a full year, is that is that what they need to do? Or are a couple days should we worry about that? Make sure their family brings them into the hospital right away, or um, really get those refills right away that same day. Don't let it go a couple days before they go pick them up. Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I kind of, my analogy there is sort of uh, to hypertension. And I think the more drops that they're on for glaucoma, probably the higher their pressure was off of medication. And so you can imagine going from four meds to zero that they're probably going to experience a higher elevation in their intraocular pressure, which can be um, very stressful and damaging to the optic nerve. Um, So even just getting them back on one or two of them can can mitigate the pressure elevation a little bit. So I usually discourage kind of being off of everything for a few days because just that change from a controlled pressure to a high pressure can be uh, very stressful on the optic nerve. Um, but, you know, if they're on kind of one drop and, and they missed a few days, sometimes there's still kind of a half-life of the drug in the eye. So I don't think, you know, the patient has to run in the middle of the night to get that one drop. You know, if they get started on it the next day, um, should be okay. But we love and appreciate when patients are continued on their drops in the hospital. We will make a good faith effort, as will the audience. This is a, <laughs> this is a binding agreement uh, that I've just made for everybody that's listening. Well, so cataracts and open angle glaucoma were the two big things for this chronic severe bilateral vision loss that that our patients experiencing here. And we mentioned steroids for cataracts. Anything else that we can tell patients they can do to prevent cataracts? I've heard that wearing sunglasses is a thing. Is that is that important? Yeah, so UV exposure can definitely kind of contribute to cataract development. And so we do recommend wearing sunglasses um, just in general when patients are outside for prolonged periods of time in sunlight. And any other major factors uh, other than medications? You mentioned maybe genetics, uh, sunlight, anything else that we need to tell patients to watch out for? 
Yeah, those are the big ones. Um, and steroids, likewise, can also cause intraocular pressure elevation. So um, oftentimes I tell my patients, particularly if they have family history of glaucoma and they're on steroids chronically, like Flonase nasal spray or a topical steroid for a dermatologic condition that they should have their intraocular pressure checked uh, to see if they're someone that's susceptible to intraocular pressure elevations with steroid medication. So... Glaucoma remains on the differential with Miss Steroids. Let's say we're lucky, though, and we have an amazing ophthalmology colleague who gets the patient in quickly and gives us a formal diagnosis of cataracts. Um, And because of the vision change that's really worsened, it recommends that they actually proceed with surgery. So, of course, send them back to us, the primary care docs, to uh, optimize them before their procedure. Uh, So are there any... uh, any tips on on what you wish sort of PCPs knew on how to optimize um, a patient before a cataract surgery? Yeah, so I often get questions, and I really appreciate it, about anticoagulation. Um, the good news is that cataract surgery has advanced so much that it's really not a very vascular procedure. The lens of the eye has no blood vessels, and we actually enter the eye through the cornea. That's the incision we make to access the cataract, and that is avascular as well. Um, the concern with anticoagulation came from our um, anesthetic technique uh, previously, where we actually had to do what we call a retrobulbar injection, where we inject um, anesthetic into the retro uh, orbital region. But now we actually just do topical anesthesia with drops that anesthetize the eye because the surgery is so quick that the topical anesthesia is, you know, remains in effect for the duration of the procedure. And so really we don't worry about anticoagulation so much. And so, you know, that's kind of just a pearl I want to share with our audience is that we don't have to stress so much when patients are on very heavy duty uh, blood thinners, because thankfully there's a, there's a very low bleeding risk with this procedure, the way we currently perform it. So I can continue a Pixaban, Warfarin, Aspirin, Plavix, same day of surgery? You can. I'm knocking on wood right now, but you can. <laughs> uh, and what about tamsulosin? You know, I hear this thing all the time about, you know, floppy iris syndrome. Is this something we should be concerned about? Yeah, I love the puzzled look on my patients' faces when I ask them about use of tamsulosin. They're thinking, what the heck does this have to do with my eye? Um, but so interestingly, you know, that causes what we call floppy iris syndrome, basically the effect on the muscle of the, the iris muscle um, from this medication causes it to um, not dilate well and actually to become floppy uh, intraoperatively. And so as you can imagine, that can be very disruptive to the surgery. Um, Unfortunately, once the uh, individual is exposed to this medication, that risk is there. And so discontinuing it doesn't really change the intraoperative potential complications we may encounter. The key that really helps us is knowing in advance, because then we can go into the operating room equipped with uh, the equipment that will help us to optimally manage it. It's not fun to find out uh, after the fact or during the surgery that the patient was on the medication. And, you know, that happens sometimes and we can manage it, but just going in prepared always, um, sets us up for better success with patients with exposure. And, and to reassure your patients, we have so many patients that are on this medication. And so we really do have great strategies to deal with it now. Even, even they hold it like a week or two before, like multiple half-lives, it's still just like, 
it's like once they're exposed, it just just it just ruins the the iris for. <laughs> It does. You know, if, if they've only been on it for a short time, perhaps they were trialed on it and, and it wasn't helpful or they didn't need to be on it. I, I think some patients get away with doing fine. So there may be something also about the duration of time uh. they've been on it. But but if if the if they've been on it long enough that it's going to affect the iris, stopping it is going to make no difference, unfortunately. In my understanding, this is a relatively quick procedure. There's the anesthesia, it's its its in the low, what we would consider from a cardiovascular standpoint, a low risk procedure. Are patients under, is it more like sedation, like conscious sedation, like a colonoscopy, or is it more of a, like, are they actually on general anesthesia for this procedure? Yeah. So typically it's very light anesthesia. Actually, um, we often prefer it to be even lighter than uh, the, like a, it is MAC anesthesia, but we we tend to have it not even as deep as with the colonoscopy. And that's because sometimes we need the patient to participate with us and, and follow some instructions in terms of where to gaze, things like mm-hmm. that. And so as you can imagine, if, if you fall asleep during anesthesia too, we all kind of startle a little bit when we wake up and, and we want to avoid that oh, while yeah. we are Jeez. doing surgery. So so we actually, you know, our anesthesiologists are wonderful. They really kind of find that sweet spot where we've kind of taken the edge off, reduced the anxiety, but not so deep that they kind of fall asleep because that can be that can be challenging. But you were, you've reminded me of something else that I think could really help us. And we often don't think about this, but we need our patients to be supine when we're doing surgery because we operate under a microscope. The patient's laying flat and we bring the, the microscope down over their eye. And so a question I often ask my patients preoperatively is if they can lay flat without coughing. And often this is a problem for patients with CHF or, um, you know, respiratory concerns, um, you know, patients that kind of have to sleep on two or three pillows at night. These are patients that we have to sort of strategize for prior to surgery because we need to kind of angle them with Trendelenburg positioning or, or, or other maneuvers to kind of accommodate the angle that they feel comfortable at, but also get them to a point that we can position correctly. And so sometimes it's helpful from a fluid standpoint to to have our primary care physicians and colleagues kind of optimize the patient from a CHF standpoint, um, if that's uh, something they have so that they can kind of lay as flat as possible uh, to successfully do the surgery. Okay. And these patients are, they are NPO on the day of the procedure? Yes. Okay. So, so probably the the rules apply to our audience for the diabetic medications for patients who are nothing by mouth. And it sounds like I would probably have a higher threshold to stop hold blood pressure meds before this, unless the person's blood pressure was on the lower side to begin with, because it sounds like they're not getting too much sedation. I don't know in your experience, Nisha, have you, have you run into blood pressure problems during these surgeries or have your anesthesia colleagues remarked to you about that? Yeah. So actually, I feel like our anesthesia colleagues often prefer that they do take their meds in the yeah. AM for hypertension if if that's when they, mm-hmm. they dose them. And and we it's absolutely fine for them to do that just with small sips of water. We don't want them to have sort of a whole kind of eight ounce glass of water. But um, I have found that sometimes they can they can run a little hypertensive. Um, you know, and and that's where bleeding can be a problem. We don't want to operate if they're if they're too hypertensive because then there can be risk of kind of spontaneous microvascular right. ruptures that could be concerning. Okay, 
That's great. That's this is really helpful stuff. Yeah, because with a lot of the bigger, especially like intra-abdominal surgeries, where we're worried about like big fluid shifts and uh, they're under heavier sedation, hypotension is the problem, and so we're often holding certain medications. And I think uh, it's it's good to know exactly what what this procedure is like since it's so common and it's probably every week if you're in primary care you get asked to sign forms before someone goes to cataract surgery. And uh, so this is a really great discussion. I think we're probably going to have to end it here. We've taken uh, a lot of your time. It's It's been very informative. So I think we're ready for take-home points. Um, do you have like one or two favorite take-home points that you wanted to give the audience? Yeah, I think I've, I've hopefully shared them during the course of our, our uh, conversation. But I think the iVital signs, you know, I interact with a lot of uh, medical students and, and non-ophthalmology residents. And I hope that if you can just think about approaching ocular presentations with these three physical exam findings, it can hopefully kind of um, help you to formulate a differential and kind of um, uh, take the, the anxiety around ocular uh, presentations away. Awesome. And on that note, do you have any final things you'd like to plug? Yeah, so just a shout out for um, our website, which is 2020sim.com, 2020sim.com. The, the cases we discussed today are derived from this, and it's just an um, interactive case-based ophthalmology educational tool just designed for healthcare providers. Um, and uh, shout out to Samira Farouk, who is the founder of the SIM series. Uh, that's a case-based uh, medicine uh, clinical reasoning tool. Uh, 2020sim is the first kind of sister site of her uh, founding site, NEFSIM. So um, if you enjoyed the cases today, um, there's a whole array of cases on the site. And we actually just launched a neuro-ophthalmology case series in collaboration with some of my neurology colleagues on specific uh, neuro-op kind of emergency cases. So hope you'll check them out and enjoy them. It's really awesome, guys. Like definitely take the time to go through cases. It's, it's well done. Thank you. All right, so we will fade that into our outro. This has been another episode of The Curbsiders, bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole. Yummy. Just feels weird reading Paul's part now. Get your show notes at thecurbsiders.com forward slash podcast and sign up for our mailing list at thecurbsiders.com forward slash knowledge food to get our weekly show notes in your inbox. We're committed to providing you with high-value, practice-changing knowledge, and to do that, we need your feedback. So please subscribe, rate, and review the show on Apple Podcasts or contact us at thecurbsiders at gmail.com. A huge shout-out and special thanks to our social media team, Beth Garbs, Garbatelli on Twitter, Maddie Morgan on Instagram, and Chris the Chew Manchu on Facebook. Until next time, I'm Carolyn Chan. And uh, before I do my sign off, I have to, of course, thank the great Dr. Carolyn Chan for producing this episode, writing and producing this episode, and to Kate Grant for our cover art, and to Stuart Brigham for producing our wonderful theme music, Claire Morgan of Notterly for editing our audio. Uh, miss it. We are missing Dr. Paul Williams and Dr. Stuart Kent Brigham tonight, uh, but they're out there somewhere. Uh, until next time, I've been Dr. Matthew Frank Watto. Thank you and good night. And thanks to our partner, VCU Health Continuing Education, who's helping us offer free CE credits for physicians and other healthcare professionals. Check out curbsiders.vcuhealth.org for more information.